When you've been on the road as long as Jerry Dixie has, you end up with some wild stories to tell. You're going up and down mountains. And I looked over and I realized I was a passenger in a hot rod driven by a former sprint car champ that makes throttle cables for a living. Okay. And I was terrified. I'm just like down below, below the cowl. Welcome to What Moves You, a Speedway Motors podcast telling the stories behind the cars and the people who build and drive them. I'm Joe McCullough, and in this episode, we welcome Jerry Dixie. After Woodstock, Evil Knievel's Snake River attempt, and 110 consecutive NSRA road tour stops, Jerry has a lifetime of stories. His contributions in custom motorcycles and vans in the 60s and 70s, automotive memorabilia, and the road tour he's so famous for today have influenced generations of automotive fans. I want to start at the very, very beginning. What made you first fall in love with cars? You know, it's funny that you would you would ask that today because at my I, I started a, a road or a Facebook page for the Road Tourians, and it's called Jerry Dixie's Road Tourians. And I did a uh, Happy Father's Day uh, post about my dad. And, you know, I'm sure people that are listening and you're wagging your head, I'm sure dad was a car guy or not, but that so many times is what brings us as youth around to the hobby. Yeah, we could read Hot Rod Magazine and that sort of thing. But when you've got a guy in your life that can tear down a motor and put it back together, number one, you feel inadequate for your entire life because I'm not a good mechanic. <laughs> but, but, but number two, that really gives you a, uh, uh, a base. And what I posted it at the Facebook page yesterday was the story of my father in 1960, 61, restoring my great-grandfather's 1926 Model T Ford Woody station wagon. Hmm. And it had been in the family. My, my great-grandfather had a farm, and he worked the farm with this Woody station wagon. And, and my dad got it in 1960, 1961, and he decided to restore it. And the backstory is that my great-grandfather, who I, I very, very you know, faint memory of, of, of that long ago, but he had painted it with yellow enamel paint. He painted all the wood with yellow enamel paint. And you go, oh, wow, that's kind of kooky, right? <laughs> yellow enamel paint on a, wood, on a wood body car. But in retrospect, it was not that he thought of this, but it was genius because it preserved all the wood. And the car, the station wagon, which I still own, has all the original wood from 1926. Wow. And it's because of that yellow enamel paint. And one of my first memories of working with my dad restoring the car, you know, how much can you help when you're nine years old? But was being out in the garage at my, my our house, you know, nine years old, living home, obviously. And we use zip strip. Are you familiar with zip strip, Joe? Oh, yeah. Has it been outlawed completely on all faces of the earth everywhere? It is the most toxic chemical I have ever encountered. Is it a, at least I'll have it? I, I, I have know. a feeling they've probably changed the formula to, to now it's the PG rated version. <clears throat> well, what we did was we were stripping the yellow enamel paint off the wood, wood body. And hey, I'm helping my dad. You know, I'm cool. I got a white T-shirt on. I'm nine years old. And he goes, well, you know, we'll, we'll brush it on and then we'll take this wire brush and we'll, we'll remove it. I'm like, okay. Well, he's not watching me and I'm using this wire brush and it's spraying the zip strip onto my arms. But who's going to say, dad, this hurts. No, man, I was glad to be with dad working on this woody wagon. Right. So he finally looked over. He goes, don't your arms hurt? I go, uh-huh. And he grabbed <laughs> me by the collar and he threw me in the kitchen and said, Barb, clean him up and put him in a long sleeve work shirt, you know, and oh, goodness. so I was back. But at any rate, we, uh, we restored that car. He restored the car. And how much can I help at nine years old? But we, uh, he, he formed along with nine other fellows in Northeastern Ohio, the Model T Ford Club of Mahoning County of our area. So I grew up in the Model T Ford and going to car shows and going to, um, events that the, that the Ford, you know, there was a lot of Model T clubs and Model A clubs back in the day. This is, of course, the 60s. And there was a ton of those clubs. So we would go to the events and I would chug along and mom and dad would be in the front seat. and There'd be a covered, covered casserole in the front, you know, and we're going to a picnic and all that sort of thing. So I grew up around that. 
dad was very, um, very helpful and, and uh, supportive of, of what I did. And I'll, and I'll tell you one more story of the, of the Model T Ford. When I was a junior in high school, the prettiest girl in school came to me and she said, Jerry, your dad has that old car, doesn't he? It's in all the parades we see in Canfield. And I go, yep, he does. And <laughs> she said, would you drive me in the homecoming queen court down the football field this Friday at the ceremonies before the football game? And I went, oh boy. Now, Joe, have you ever driven a Model T Ford? I have. Oh, God bless you, because they are the the hardest thing to get used to or anything else you get used to it. Right. But it was straight out of a Frank Capra movie. It's, it's Friday night, our little town of 5,000 people, every single person was on the bleachers. Right. And I've got all the pretty girls in, in school in my car. And I'm at one end of the, of the, of the field of the football field. And as you know, you, you get going. And when you reach that certain RPM, then you lift up on your left and it goes from low to high. And, uh, I hit that 50 yard line and I thought I was there. I held my breath and I lifted up and it moved right into high and I made it to the goal. <laughs> you would have thought I scored the winning touchdown <laughs> at the state championships. I was so excited. And, and, you know, it's just, it's something that, Hey, dad was the driver. I was the passenger when I was mm-hmm. growing up, but I have been asked to bring that car up to Detroit during the Woodward dream cruise. It's, almost identical to the cars that they, that they have at the uh, Greenfield village. Have you had the mm-hmm. pleasure of going mm-hmm. to Greenfield village and Henry yep. Ford? It's just like those Woodies that go around and we're sponsored by a uh, um, motor city solutions up in Detroit for our Woodward dream cruise tour. And he heard that I had this car and he said, Jerry, I, I, I want you to, to bring it up for an open house. And then we're going to have it on display during the dream cruise. And I said, Jeff, it's a model T I can't drive it. I'm in Ohio I'm three hours away. And he goes, Jerry, I've got car haulers. Just tell me how much roof clearance do we need? And, and I said, well, okay, we can do that. And then I thought I better relearn how to drive it mm-hmm. because he's going to want me to be giving rides in his parking lot. So me and, and, and my wife, Marianne and my, my sidekick, Pete, and my brother, too, because my brother spent a lot of time in the car. We all went out to the local county fairgrounds where there's a lot of room and mm-hmm. not a lot of buildings and other cars. And it's like a bicycle. You remember. Yeah. You remember the sounds. And and as you know, and maybe some of your listeners that, that have had the pleasure of driving a Model T, the accelerator is on the steering wheel. Mm-hmm. And then it goes uh, brake, reverse, low, neutral, high. Going, le- uh, going right to left on the three pedals on the floor and the spark advance on the left. And all that's fine and dandy when you're going, oh, okay, well, that's that and that's that, that's that. Until you get into a crisis situation where you have to act fast and the first thing you do is lift your foot off the floor. Well, no, that's not your accelerator. Your accelerator. Right. At any rate, that's my. that was my first uh, uh, old car uh, mm-hmm. interaction. In the '60s, we we raced slot cars, you know, and and I was the afternoon manager at a slot car track in my town when I was in high school, a dream job. And then uh, I started working on motorcycles and uh, ruined a whole bunch of motorcycles. Us chopper builders cut them up in the in the '60s and '70s. Is we 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 put the uh, we put the fire wrench to the neck and raked them out and took mm-hmm. the suspension. Well, you, you've seen them, but anyway, I did I did motorcycles for uh, for about five years? Built built custom bikes the whole time I was going to college, and then I um, uh, I went into uh, from motorcycles. I went into custom vans, and I had a van shop for thir- for twenty five years. I operated operated a van shop. Uh, you know the uh, the scene in the in the mid seventies. That was just a hot. That was a hot thing, those custom bands. So that was the, that was the, the big thing. And, and that cooled down a little bit. And we did family conversions with uh, four seats and a sofa and a bay window. And uh, then I, I might as well finish this whole story, right, about how did we get to here. But I, <clears throat> I had the custom van shop, and I always was enamored with collectibles, with um, gas station stuff and, and mm-hmm. pedal cars. And I built models. You know, my first model I built was, was Ed Ross Outlaw. And uh, whenever I still, when I see the outlaw and I think Speedway has the original or uh, w- one of the good. The one models. in the museum is a clone, but I believe it was pulled from the original mold, as I, I understand it. 
there yeah i know dave shooting has that dave shooting has mm-hmm. that old i still get chills as an adult when i see the outlaw to, to me and it's hard to pull pull your memory out and go do you realize how far out that car was in the mid 60s between the outlaw and the beatnik bandit it's like wow and, and I've met it. Did you ever have the the, the, the pleasure of meeting Ed Roth? I, I did not. Interest, interesting guy. He 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 dealt in a different plane, you know. And and you know, people would joke and say, "Boy, he's really strange." But he was pretty down to earth. But he had such a creative bent. You know, he saw he like so many artists. He saw things in a different way. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the Beatnik Bandit and the Outlaw, and you go, they they were putting Packard taillights on the backs of 57 Chevys and he's building this stuff. Right. And so anyway, uh, I did that. So we did slot cars, did the motorcycles, and then we built the custom vans and I had the collectibles. Well, I took a part of my van shop and the waiting room I filled with neon clocks and signs and reproduction stuff and pedal cars. And um, everybody would go in there and say, Hey, where'd you get this stuff? I want to do my kitchen like this. I want to do my basement. By the way, they need to outlaw the word man cave. I hate it. <laughs> it is, it is, it is silly, silly. Whoever came up with it, you're fired. But, but it, um, they would say, I want to buy this stuff. So I thought, well, maybe there's a, you know, maybe there's a market for this. So I started, uh, uh, a company called classic. Uh, I, at the time I called it classic transportation, but I kept getting calls from people that wanted their classic cars shipped to California. And I, I mm-hmm. meant transportation like motorcycles, hot rods mm-hmm. and, and that kind of thing. So I changed it to classic automobilia and um, we had a catalog. We shipped products all over the world. That is how we'll bring it kind of a circle to speedway, how I met speedy bill. I was invited by, um, a fellow from SEMA, Dick Wells, to bring my stuff out to SEMA because they were doing a, a display. This goes back quite a while. This probably would have been 86, 7, mm-hmm. 8, 89, doesn't matter. And they were doing a display and they wanted to have an area of like collectibles. It was when collectibles were first getting hot. And they wanted to have some gas pumps and pedal cars and neon clocks. And Dick Wells had seen my catalog and he invited me to bring my stuff out. And it was just amazing. I, I took my a couple of my pedal car. We had a custom fiberglass pedal car and we had custom uh, gas tanks and things. And he had invited Bill. And in that weekend, I met half of my heroes on a first name basis. Bill was there with, with Beverly Hills Motor, Motor Cars comp- Company with the pedal cars of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, Chico from Moon Eyes was there with, with their stuff. Uh, and, and on and on and on the, the, the people that, uh, uh, that I met that were, had things in that display that were just people that I had just read about. So it was, it was a, a very significant, uh, uh, an event for me to, to meet all those. And, and Bill and I, and until, until, until Bill passed, I I'm proud to say that Bill, I considered a good friend of mine mm-hmm. and, and, and we shared the same hobbies and, uh, I would always during the road tour go, uh, when I'm traveling west on I-80, I would jump off on Lincoln every time, and I'd walk up, and the secretary knew me, and she said, Bill's back in the office, and he'd go, Dixie, where are you going? What are you doing? And the the time that was the most significant for me was the day that he said, you got a few minutes? And I said, I always have. Whatever time you want, Bill. Mm-hmm. Said, Come on, I'm going to show you the new museum. And it wasn't open yet. Oh, wow. And he unlocked the door, and the handrails were still he goes don't touch your handrails you just paint them they were still wet with paint i had a sony camera that could take film the videos film mm-hmm. old guy uh could could do digital digital film and i said bill is it okay if i photograph while you're talking and i over his shoulder walked behind him and he walked me through the museum. At that time, I think it was just two floors. Right. I walked with Bill, and it was just amazing. I had been to the old. Did you ever? Were you ever at the other museum, the Speed on Speedway Drive, the first one? No. And it was it was unbelievable in its own right. But to me, and again, I got chills right now talking about it. To me, the Speedway Motors Museum is for a car guy. This it is the end of end of the rainbow. It is just amazing the things that uh that that they have and, and i'll give a shout out to my buddy tim 
at the museum, Tim Matthews does a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've always, uh, from, from Bill, when, when Bill was still with us, to, uh, to Clay and, and Tim, they've always been so uh, receptive to me bringing some people to the museum and seeing it. So anyway, I started, I started the classic automobilia and I, I was set up at the, uh, uh, at the lead sled nationals in outside of Cincinnati. And I had my pedal car display and my classic automobile display and Tom Vogley walked in with Jerry Wiesner. Now, for those that are listening that don't know who Tom is, Tom was the editor of Street Rotter magazine for many years. Uh, he then went on uh, to be and, and is currently the editor of Street Scene for NSRA. Well, I recognized Tom uh, from his pictures in the magazine. And, and he said, hey, what are you doing? Boy, this stuff looks pretty cool. And I said, hi, Tom. I'm Jerry Dixie. And I would... Um, I think maybe you should think about doing an article about pedal cars because a lot of the hot rod guys are, are customizing their pedal cars. And uh, he gave me the answer that I, I, I figured out later on that it was his standard response to, Hey, and, and I'll do respect to Studebaker pickup trucks, but Hey, you ought to do an article on Studebaker pickup trucks. And he would go, well, if you know about Studebaker pickup <laughs> trucks, why don't you write the article? Well, he made the mistake of, he said to me, if you know about pedal cars, why don't you write the article? And I said, how many words and what kind of photography do you need? And he goes, Oh, well, okay. And the, um, I, I should know this for sure. The March of 1992, I think, 90, uh, March, it is the pedal car issue. And I had six articles about pedal cars in one issue of Street wow. Auto Magazine. And it just blew up. You know, I, we, I, we were selling things. And, and so I, I got to be good friends with Tom and mm-hmm. Tim Foss. Tim was the salesman mm-hmm. at the time. You know mm-hmm. Tim. And... Uh, and we just ran with it. We became good friends. They liked the way I rode. It was kind of cracker barrel. Oh, golly shucks. Let's do this. And I'm <laughs> writing these things about pedal cars. And I wrote are about gas pumps and, and collectibles and gas station things. And um, they liked the way I wrote. And then I built through the help of my, uh, how do they say uh, a brother from a different mother, Barry Lobeck. Mm-hmm. You know I, I never met, you know, I'm very familiar with his cars, but I never met him. Most of the things you heard was true. Mm-hmm. Barry was, was, was a fun guy and a crazy guy. And, and, uh, and we hit it off. We were both about the same age, both from Ohio and his crew took a 34 Ford four door sedan that I had bought. That was an antique. And I, I said, well, I said, maybe we could make it a hot rod. And I said, but it wouldn't be a pro street rod. And it wouldn't be a resto rod. Let's call it the presto rod mm-hmm. and show folks how you can take an antique car and make it into a fun, safe, reliable hot rod and not do a lot of changes to it. And that was the time, the transition time when there was a lot of the older fellows like my dad that were starting to pass away and these antiques were sitting there. And, you know, instead of taking the whole thing off and doing a whole frame build, you know, frame and body and all that, just make them safe, you know, make mm-hmm. sure that you got the go and you got the woe. And uh, that you're not afraid to drive them and that sort of thing. So we did the Presto Rod and I wrote a four-part buildup of it in Street Rodder and it was featured in, in 1990, 93, 94. And uh, I started driving and I loved it. I just mm-hmm. had so much fun driving, driving street rods. So I went to Tom and I said, I got an idea. I said, um, why don't we build a street rod and, uh, you know, we'll get the, the uh, advertisers to donate some parts and put it together and, you know, we'll cover the buildup of it. Maybe Barry could do it or somebody could do it and then drive it to all the events around the country, all the NSRA events and uh, show people that if you use good products from our advertisers, obviously, mm-hmm. and you use common sense and, and, and use some good safety standards when you're building it, these things should be driven. This was the day of the trailer queens, and that's another term I don't particularly care for, but that's that was the days when the guys that were getting into our hobby were coming from different walks of life. They weren't the teenage guys that built their hot rods. Mm-hmm. They were a businessman that built up a, a bank account, and they wanted to get involved, and I have no problem with that at all. If somebody has been successful in something else and they want to play with what I like to play with, 
that's fine. They can they can buy a bat and ball, and that's okay. So I've got no problem with folks folks buying a street ride. But the downside of it is, if you didn't build it and you're not familiar with it, you're kind of a little bit afraid to to, to drive it. So that's why guys were loading their cars up and putting them in trailers and dragging them to the fairgrounds to get them off and, and, mm-hmm. and you know rump rump rumping around the fairgrounds. So I said this could show people that you can drive these things. And Tom said, man, I love it. And I said, okay, well, you know, we'll build the whole car. And uh, at the end of the season, we'll sell it. And that's how I can get compensated for part of my time. It's going to mm-hmm. take some time. And, and we can pay for the space at the, at the events. And he said, no, no we can't. if we get the parts for, from the advertisers, we can't sell it. We need to give it away. And I said, okay, but <laughs> I'm not the mother Teresa of driving street lots here. We can't give it away. <laughs> I, I, I need to get, I need to make up a little bit. How am I explaining to my wife what I did for, for three months this summer? And she was running our van shop. Mm-hmm. So he goes, oh, we'll pay you. And it just, I stopped and went, you'll pay me to drive your hot rod around the United <laughs> States. He goes, yeah. He goes, Come up with a come up with a number. Come come up with an amount. He goes. I don't want to get receipts for from donuts and mm-hmm. and gasoline and oil and all. And he goes. Figure out how much it's going to cost us in the hotel rooms and all that stuff. So I okay okay. I, I I did some I did some ciphering as they say, and I tried to kind of figure out. Well, I'm going to be on the road, and these motors get maybe 18 miles to the gallon mm-hmm. on the motor. And so I came up with a number, and and I've I've told this story a number of times, and and. Uh, my wonderful wife, but Marianne and I have been together 50 years wow. um, and she's got more brains than I do. I think when it comes to common sense stuff mm-hmm. and I came up with a number that I was comfortable with and she said, well, you need to add, you need to add 10, 15, 20% onto that. And I go, why? And she said, well, you're forgetting something. And I said, well, what am I forgetting? And she goes, we don't know what you're forgetting, <laughs> right? but you're forgetting something. And while you're out being a hot rod hero, I'm going to be running our van shop. Mm-hmm. So you need to at least make it worth your while. So I did that. I showed I showed Tom the number and I was a little bit nervous, but you got to understand they're out in LA and I'm in Youngstown, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I pushed a number just like in the movies across the desk. And I said, here, and he goes, oh, okay, well, we should probably get t-shirts made and some other things. I go, well, we're not even going to negotiate this. He goes, no, that's fine. He, I go, I didn't ask for enough, did I? He goes, probably not, but we'll eventually give you a raise. <laughs> And the rest is history. I drove to 110 consecutive NSRA events around the United States over a 10-year period in a hot rod. And, you know, I'm not saying, hey, look at me. I had the help of a lot of people and a lot of uh, people stayed back in the home front and did a lot of things. My wife and and the people out at uh, at Street Rider Magazine. But, yeah, I was out there and I I hit the pavement and, and, and traveled. 25,000 mile, 25, miles a year for 10 consecutive years. And uh, that's a lot of, that's a, that's a, that's a lot of, of uh, NSRA events. And I made some great friends, Wings Callahan, Buck Reynolds, all the whole, Vernon Walker, uh, the whole NSRA team, because, and the other folks, those were the days when, when there was a lot of, of companies that were putting big rigs, Speedway was doing it, had big rigs and trailers out that did every single event. Mm-hmm. And we were, <laughs> sound crazy, but we were rock stars. I mean, we would hit town and all of us that were travelers, we wouldn't travel together, but we would hit town on Thursday and we all stayed at the headquarters hotel. And we just had a, uh, just had a, a, a great time of being the show. We were the show. We were like a, like a, a baseball team or a rock band or whatever, you know, and, and had a good time. And then come su- Sunday afternoon when they shut down, we'd head our separate ways and say, see you in two weeks in, uh, um, in Bakersfield or wherever we were going. So that was the first 10 years, the road tour. And after that period of time, Tim and I, of course, we became good friends and, and, and Tom Vogley was still there at that time. He said, you know, we need to mix things up a little bit. I go, okay, well, what do you, what do you got in mind? And he said, why don't you write a column and invite people to travel with you in their cars? And I went, well, that'll change everything. <laughs> it's just, I was used to what, what my, what my usual day involved when I was traveling to an event is I would get up at the, at, at the crack of dawn, 
if it was going to be a long day, I would get up an hour. And this is kind of insightful for those of you that want to do some miles. I would get up if it was going to be a long day, an hour before sunrise. And I would drive, I would, as I like to say, take my darkness in the morning. I would take my darkness for the first hour and a half or two hours because I knew the sun was coming up. If you drive into the night after the sun goes down, you're not getting any light until eight hours when that sun comes up. So I thought, you know, I'd rather take my, I, I don't like to drive anyway, but anyway, I would drive 750 to 800 miles a day. And when the sun went down, I would stop. And uh, that was my normal routine. I didn't have to make hotel reservations. I would go to the, the first, you know, super eight motel or whatever and, and stay there. Jerry's first articles in Street Rotter made a splash, but the working relationships they established planted the seeds for something much greater. At the time, a lot of people trailered their cars around to events. Jerry wanted to prove that you could make an old street rod reliable. This is where the storied road tour begins, and it all started with a build called the Presto Rod. I want to make a personal comment here. I was in college and learning what hot rods were about. You know, I grew up with cars like you, dad, who did car stuff, but hot rods and street rods were sort of foreign to me. That wasn't part of my, my orbit. So I read street rodder magazine while I was at work at my, you know, crappy video store, I would sit there and read street rodder magazine. And I remember reading your road tour articles. And I remember reading that you'd like to start before the sun came up and then you'd have sort of be reinvigorated when the sun would come up. And I remember thinking like, man, what a cool situation to be in, to be out on the road in a hot rod. And, you know, man, I hope I can get there someday. And lo and behold, years and years and years later, I was able to join you on the tour, you know, with Speedway Motors and and sort of did that. And it was this really great sort of full circle moment for me to actually be able to, you know, get up early in the morning and hit the road with a coffee in my hand and an old hot rod. And and I thought I think back often to, you know, reading those columns when I was young and had no idea that I would ever actually get to do it. Well, you know, that's that that's very fulfilling for me. And I'll tell you why. What you just said is when I started doing the road tours, I wasn't doing it necessarily for the money. I, I, I thought, you know what, this is how cool is this, what they're going to let me do. And I looked back to when I was a kid and I picked up Hot Rod Magazine and they always had coverage of Bonneville. And I saw those guys sleeping on the salt or sleeping in the barracks at the Air Force Base, the, the 49ers, uh, the Bob Pearsons, right? The Pearson brothers. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, if someday some young kid could look at my articles, a true story, I guess, could look at my articles and go, how cool to be that time when that was going on. So I guess it's happened. I'm done. I'm retiring right now officially. <laughs> but no, seriously, that's that's a fantastic story. And thank you for sharing that because that really is what I had in mind. I thought, how cool would it be for someday to have a young person go, wow, that was really neat what they were doing back then. Cause a lot of people travel with me too. So I want to go back actually to the, the very first road tour, the blue 33, 34 coupe, whatever it was with the white mm -hmm. stripes over the top. It's a very famous car. Now um, you had this brilliant idea that you were going to do this. It actually came to fruition. You get in the car, you turn the key. It's early in the morning and you're about ready to head out on the road on the very first very first leg of this, what was going through your mind at that moment? Well, interesting because the very first leg where I was the driver by myself, um, and those of you that have been around a long time with NSRA and, and going to rod runs, Knoxville used to be the kickoff. It was the beginning of May. And then the next one was out in Bakersfield, California. So Tom Vogley came in and Tom and I took that car down and Barry was following with the trailer because we weren't quite sure. Lobex built that car, by the way. And, and Debbie Walls from, from Low Car owns it now. And Tom and I took the car down there and we had a big entourage. So there was no, there was no scary stuff involved there. But the next trip was me getting in it at Barry Lobex. And as you said, turning the key and driving to, well, I the, the destination was Bakersfield, California. But I, I drove down to Nashville from, from there. And I'd never really spent a ton of time in a street rod. 
but I was, I, as I recall, I wasn't nervous. I, I had, you know, I had faith in, 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 in Lobeck's crew, the guys that, uh, that, that built the car. A number of them are still in, in business at, at Precision Hot Rods in Macedonia. But I went down to Nashville and I picked up Skip Wall from Low Car, you know, Skip. And we drove, uh, the first day we drove from Nashville to San Antonio. And the next day, and Skip hates it when I tell this story. He hates it. Be, if he listens to this, he's going to go, oh, don't tell that. But we drove to San Antonio, stayed overnight, got up the next morning, and I drove. And I drove all day long. And Skip, yeah, you did, slept all day long. And I was driving. Well, the sun's going down. I don't like to, I don't like to, to drive at night. And we got to, uh, oh, not, not Winslow, just past Winslow, top of the hill, where we at in Arizona. Uh, on, on, on interstate 44 and I'm pulling off and he wakes up and he goes, what are you doing? I go, we're getting a hotel. I've driven all day. He goes, move over. He says, I'm driving. We got to get to LA. I got things to do. And I go, Oh geez, you're kidding me. He goes, no, come on. I'm going to drive. Well, that stretch after you crest the mountain after Winslow and the next town, it's a big town. I can't think of the name, but anyway, it's all white. I mean, you're going up and down mountains. And I looked over and I realized I was a passenger in a hot rod driven by a former sprint car champ that makes throttle cables for a living. Okay. And I was terrified. I'm just like down like that. You can't see it. Down below, below the cowl, just, just, hot, just, uh, and, uh, and we made it, uh, uh, we made it another, he drove another three or four hours down uh, and we came out of the mountains and then we stayed overnight and we took it in the next day. But that was my, that was my experience. But that first, the first day by myself to get down to Nashville. Yeah. It was a little bit, it was a little bit intimidating, but you know, as I look back on this stuff and I've been posting a lot of pictures on my road tour, uh, uh, Facebook page, the Jerry Dixie's road trains. I asked Marianne the other day, I go, how did I do all that? Because in retrospect, when, when you're in the middle of something, they say when you're in the middle of draining the swamp, you don't think about the alligators. But when you're in the middle of something, you're not, it's just, it's just one step ahead of the next one and do it and do it and do it. Got to get to here. Got to get to here. Got to get to here. But when you look back on it, you go, man, I was crazy or lucky or both. I don't know. I it just, uh, yeah, it was, it was a time. So you talked about the road tour sort of evolving and then taking on a, a crew of people that traveled with you. Mm-hmm. What, I guess, either the first version or the, or the latter version, what were some of the major sort of obstacles that you had to overcome to actually pull off the road tour every year? With, with the group? <clears throat> with the group, it was much more work. When I was by myself, it was literally... I had to be at a, an event, at a location, at a city, whether it was Bakersfield or Knoxville or, or Kalamazoo. I had to be there by Thursday for setup day. Uh, for the first few years, I was in the building, which, which uh, made it a little bit tougher. But after, after that, I, we got a tent and I stayed out in the outside exhibit area. But I had to be there. The only had to be was the fact that I couldn't call Vernon Walker and say, Hey buddy, could you delay this event for a couple of days? I'm having a little bit of trouble here. So that was um, um, something that I had to make sure got done, but I traveled as far as I wanted to go. If I wanted to travel a long, a long day, then I wouldn't travel as much the next day. And uh, it changed when I had people with me because I had to get a little bit more realistic on, on traveling. Mm -hmm. And I had to plan places that we were going to stop. You were with us on a couple of the, the Speedway Motors tours. And we try to do activities, obviously. It's not just drive, drive, drive. So we would, we would uh, stop. And, and that was a more work for me, more front-end work. But it was, um, uh, it was more fun for me. Number one, I'm a people person. You mm-hmm. saw that when you traveled with us. But number two... I got to see all those places. I used to tell people when I was traveling, and I always did, or I did the articles about the trip, and then I did the event coverage every trip in, in Street mm-hmm. Runner. So it was the driving, and then a separate article was the event coverage. 
when you saw that those early cars sitting in front of a sign that said the National Corvette Museum, if you looked real close, you could probably see the exhaust coming out of the pipe because that car mm-hmm. never shut off. Yeah. I never went in. I never said I went in. I just said we stopped that. You know, yeah. Stopped at this sign. So I I I then with groups, I got to enjoy it more. I mm-hmm. got to do some things. You know, there's a whole different aspect of it, a whole different element, you know, making sure that everybody was comfortable and happy. And I did a pretty decent job of making sure everybody was was okay with it. The way I looked at it was if they didn't like the format, they didn't like the way we did it, they, they wouldn't come back next time. Mm-hmm. But at the end, towards the final years, we had what I calculated as 75% repeat people. Mm-hmm. And when they're doing that, that's, that's the biggest compliment yeah. you can have is to have repeat people. In just a minute, we asked Jerry about his favorite experience from all the years on the road tour. And he tells us an almost unbelievable story about a chance encounter with a famous figure from early hot rodding. But first, to see pictures of Jerry and his adventures out on the road, visit The Toolbox, our automotive blog. Find it at speedwaymotors.com by clicking the toolbox link on the front page. We'll also post a few shots to Facebook and Instagram. New episodes of What Moves You come out every two weeks on Tuesdays. If you like what you hear, tell a friend to listen to What Moves You on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Looking back on all of the years that you did the tour in any format, is there one memory that stands out as your favorite moment? Yeah, I... You know, I've talked about this a couple of times and I've, I've written about it. And again, I hate to keep referring back to the, to the Rotarian page, but th- that, that Facebook group has given me a chance to relive all this stuff with all my pictures. Mm-hmm. There were a couple of times. I, um, I was out at the Bonneville Stall Flats in 1997 in the McMullen Roadster clone. You're familiar with the car, I'm sure. Maybe some of the listeners. Oh, yeah. And I'm at the end of the asphalt before it turns to salt. And they had shut the they had shut the course down because it had rained the day before. And for those of you that have been out there, you'll understand. Once it rains, it's over for a couple of days. It really makes a mess out of it. And I'm sitting there, and this guy comes up, and he's older older than me, and he goes, "Is this Tom's car?" I go, "No, it's a replica of Tom's car." He goes, "Oh yeah, I knew Tom. I used to hang around together and run together and stuff." He goes, "I go, uh, hi, I'm Jerry Dixie." And he goes, "Hi, I'm Bob Pearson." Could I drive the car? Oh, man. Yeah, I know. That's what I did. And I, I knew who he was after he said it. And I go, I go, uh, yep, you could drive it. And he got behind the wheel. And another, I don't know if I'm, a, if, if, maybe I'm just skittish when other people are driving. <laughs> but if you've been, if you've been to Bonneville, you know that the asphalt, after you come off the salt, it's asphalt. And then it's a hard left to get to the freeway. He came blasting down the road and he goes, it's running pretty good, isn't it? I go, yeah, you're scaring the heck out of me. It was a, that was a, that was a stud car. If I can use that term, that was a 30 for those that don't aren't aware. It was a black 32 Ford high boy roadster with a small block blown Chevy that had 450 horsepower, no springs in the seats. And it just uh, took off. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it ran like a bat. It had flames on it and a moon tank. And uh, it, uh, it, looked like it, was, it looked like I was having fun no matter what I was, what I was doing. That was a good car. Anyway, Tom, uh, Bob Pearson said to me, he said, um, you got a couple, couple minutes. He goes, I'd like to chat with you. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, sure, that's fine. And uh, we went over and he was in his motorhome with his wife. And he said, Sandy, let's get some coffee. And I, I was just speechless because I knew who it was. It was like one of those scenes where I guess field of dreams where they, where the baseball players walk yeah. out of the cornfield and you walk up and you go, Oh my gosh, we've kind of interacted here. And he sat down and he started talking and telling me stories. And he had pictures of about going there in 1949 as part of the 49ers. He goes, we stayed at that Air Force. It was Wendover Air Force Base. And he said, we stayed at that Air Force Base up there. He said, they charged us 50 cents a night for a bunk. And we stayed there and we raced. And then we went back and told the world, you know, what we had done, you know, Bobby Meeks and and Pearson and his brother, it was Bob and his brother, Dick Pearson were the Pearson brothers. And I, I've got a great picture of, 
of Bob and I standing next to the salt, leaning against the car. And that's just, uh, you know, one of my, uh, one of my moments, that was a big moment. I've had some great moments. We just relived through pictures for, um, for, uh, the Memorial day. We, we visited a number of air force bases and, um, it's just great to meet the, the troops that have served our country and let them see our, uh, our stuff. And we went to air station Oceana in, uh, Norfolk, Virginia. And I had made contact with the city manager of Virginia beach. They wanted to have a car show. So he said, well, I'd like to meet you and, uh, talk about how you put a car show on. And I go, okay, fine. I'm going to bring our group in. And he said, uh, I said, do you think we could get into the airbase? And he goes, well, let me, let me make a call. I, I, I think, I think so. Or I'll put you in touch with the, with the commander, I guess that's the name. It was Naval Air Station. And so they met us, the, the city manager met us. He got in the car with me, the, the commander, oh, and I'm, I'm, I apologize to you veterans. Cause I'm probably saying the wrong word, but the guy in charge of the place, he met us too. They actually mirrored our cars, meaning they inspected our cars. They looked underneath. They looked in the trunks. This was this goes back uh, quite a quite a ways. This was um, two thousand. This was before. This was before. Uh, no, no, I take that back. It was two thousand eight, two thousand nine, and um, they mirrored our cars. They checked our trunks, and they let us let us roll in. And and the commander said, "You follow me. Get behind me." He goes, "I'm going to direct." your people. I'm going to go 10, 10, 10 to go in these different uh, hangars that had the Tomcats and the Hornets fighter planes. in. Oh yeah. So, so we're going down behind these buildings and, and, and the commanders were, come on, come this way. And we're following. And they brought us out onto the flight line with our cars and we got partway down and the city manager looked at me and he goes, who are you? <laughs> and I said, what? And he goes, I've been the city manager of Virginia beach for 10 years. I've never gotten past the back of the buildings and you're driving down the flight line. So, so I go, I just guy from Ohio. I don't know. I called him and said, we're bringing some hot rods. So, so we set up in those hangars and those fly guys talk about some, some tough. I mean, just, they were, they were, they were pilots. It was top gun guys. These, this was who this was. This was the Tomcats and the Hornets. And, we uh, opened the cars up and, and opened the hoods and they came out and they looked and, and uh, they, uh, you know, they were in all of our equipment and, and I'm just looking at these, these, these Tomcats. Going, wow. And they were doing touch and goes out in the flight line. They were coming down and going right back up. And that uh, stopped for lunch break, I guess. And the, and the fellow in charge, the commander said, we well, want to get some pictures out by the planes. And I said, Oh Yeah. And so we took our cars and we parked them in between the Tomcats that were staged out on the front. Oh, that's cool. And took the picture. And to top things off, to, as if that wasn't a, a, amazing enough, to top things off, as we were getting ready to go, he said to me, the man in charge, he said, do you have another half an hour? And I said, sure, sure. What's up? He goes, well, our boys, he goes, our boys and women, men and women, we won a competition uh, a couple of months ago out west. They have a competition among the bases and we won and the rear admiral of the Navy's coming right now to give them their award. And if you would stay, we'd like you to be part of the ceremony. <laughs> and we were going, yeah. And, and we were in the back and they had all the chairs and, and, and some of the family members were there and the, the, the pilots, the men and the women pilots, they're in their dress stuff and they're all there. And this rear admiral of the Navy came up with his entourage and it looked just like in the movies. And he comes up and he goes, uh, welcome. He says, I want to, I want to say hello and, and, and congratulate you men and women. He said, before we get started on the, on the ceremony, he goes, I want to thank you hot rodders for sticking around and being a part of this. <laughs> I'm going, hey, you know, at least we could do. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was one of those moments that there were probably 20 cars with us. And to this day, when those 20 of us, when we cross paths, it's like, mm -hmm. wow, that was, a, that was a time that was exciting. So the 25th tour was going to be your last one and you were going to kind of go out with a bang and then it didn't happen. Do you, I mean, how did, how do you feel about that? Do you feel like you sort of missed the opportunity to take your victory lap? Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted, I, I was excited about the 25th. I had helped 
put the the twenty fifth program together. And what I mean by that is, for those of you that that uh, may have seen it, the car that I was going to drive and the car that was actually finished for that tour was a thirty three Ford coupe that uh, the car was sponsored by Low Car. It was built by Precision Hot Rods in Macedonia, and two of the members of the Precision team, one is, is Danny Tizar, is the owner, and Mark Mendoza is the painter, uh, they were on the first car. They, oh, were, yeah. they were on the build team of the first car. So it, it, And Low Car was the sponsor. We painted it black with silver stripes instead of blue with white stripes, but it looked the same with a mm-hmm. lot of modern – I mean, our hobby has changed, as you know, Joe, our hobby has changed so much from uh 1996 to, to 2020 21 right. and so there was a lot of updates car was beautiful made the cover of hot rod magazine and i was proud of the fact that it was going to be a full circle moment and low car uh owns that car they were the sponsor of the car they own the car and it is now the stable made of the blue and white car and so that part of it's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't get the brass bands that I was look that I was hoping for on the twenty fifth, but um, we're if I can if I can tell this, I think it's okay. I am doing a couple more tours this year, and I'll probably do a couple more tours next year mm-hmm. on my own. My wife and I with Classic Automobilia. It's going to be the same type of a format. It's going to a little bit different. It's going all inclusive and include everything that we're doing that that week. It's going to be all in one in one money, but. Um, I'm doing Woodward and then we're doing shade. We're doing Nashville to shades of the past. So I'm still out there. And, and now that I've gotten back uh, in, in the public again, you know, we all had our, our heads down in the foxhole as mm-hmm. we did, I'm sure for a year, year and a half. Now that I'm out again and doing it, I missed it. I really, I really did. I didn't miss eight tours. I was gone 90 days on the road from May till, till September. Oh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. And, uh, uh, maybe that's why we're still married at, at, after 50 years. I don't know. There, there was a, there was a rumor in the industry that Marianne had personally financed the road tours in the early years, just to get me out of the house all those days. <laughs> no, we, we're, we get along fine. She's a, she's a car gal. She, uh, she likes to go with me on occasion. She's spent some, 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 uh, road tours with me on the road. The, the, the people that are on the tour with me, when they see Marianne, they all smile and go, yes, Marianne's with him and he won't be as grumpy. <laughs> she won't let him be mean to us. <laughs> Not that I am, but I guess towards the, towards the end, the final years, I might've gotten a little grumpier. Everyone considers the name Jerry Dixie to be synonymous with the road tour, but he's also huge in the automotive memorabilia scene with a significant pedal car and soapbox derby collection. So classic automobilia was kind of the thing that opened the door to the road tour. Everybody knows you for doing the road tour, but you have a pretty impressive collection of stuff. I mean, how did that, how did that start? Well, you know, that was, um, that was something that, that I've always been a pack rat. In fact, I realized how much of a pack rat I was all last summer during the pandemic. When I went through my, I've got, two pretty big buildings, 40 by 80 and, and a 50 by 25 on my property uh-huh. home, plus a van shop that I still own the building. Wow. How did everybody let me collect all this stuff? <laughs> I mean, I mean, I would go through, I, I had a great time, obviously a great time collecting it, but I had a great time going through it and finding things. And I, I what I enjoyed was I would find photographs and paperwork and call people that I hadn't talked to in, in 15 years mm-hmm. and call them. I called Chad Looney from Vintique and I, and I took a picture of the, uh, the, the letter that he sent with his first donation of uh, taillights for that, that, that first tour coupe. So I enjoyed all that, but I, I come from a, a, a collectible family. My, mm-hmm. my brother collects political items. My grandma collected the classic stuff from back in the day, coins and stamps. That was the collectible stuff. But I kept all that stuff. And, and I thought about that when I was going through it. I go, how was I able to accumulate it? And I think the reason I was able to accumulate it all is because in owning businesses, I've owned my own business since I was 19. In owning my businesses, I always had space to put stuff. Where if you didn't own a business and it was just your home, your basement would get filled up pretty quick, but it takes a while to get a 50 by 80 foot building filled. Right. And, uh, so, so that's, you know, that's fun. Uh, you know, you're talking about collectibles. And again, that was another one of the, uh, uh, one, one of the uh, things that Bill and I, Bill Smith and I, Speedy Bill shared was 
the pedal cars and the soapbox derby stuff. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it, uh, it was, it, it was great to see the collection of derby stuff. I've got, and, and I sound like a bragger here. I've got one of the largest private collections of soapbox derby items in the country. I've got mm-hmm. a helmet from every year from 1934 when it was in, it was in Dayton, Ohio. It wasn't in Akron. It didn't mm-hmm. move to Akron until 36, but, uh, I've collected that stuff. I go to Hershey back in our part of the country in, in the Midwest, in Nebraska too. The, uh, people didn't move a lot. The, yeah. the family stayed on the homestead. Maybe they stayed on the farm back in Nebraska. They stayed in the houses. You know, They worked in the mills in the 20s. And the generations didn't tend to move a lot. And when you get people that don't move a lot, the stuff just accumulates. Right. Uh, you know, if you went to if you went to California, there was probably a whole lot of really cool stuff in the desert that got pitched by the time you got there. What is the most meaningful piece to you in your collection? Oh wow, that's a, that that's good. I've I've got as far as the as far as the soapbox derby stuff. Um, they did, they did a trophy in 37, 38, and 39. If you've ever seen the early logo of the Soapbox Derby, it's the earth with a ring of Saturn around it and old number seven, which was run, driven by, driven by Ed Turner in, in 1934 that won the first one. And this old number seven is cresting this globe. Mm-hmm. And Old number seven is always broken off because it's just tacked. It's an old trophy, right? It's just yeah. tacked at the wheels. So it's always broken off. So I was able to, I was able to find and acquire one of those. That was a significant piece. And, and this is a this is kind of off the wall, but I have a 1963 Roth catalog from Maywood, California, addressed to Jerry Dixie. Oh man, Canfield, Ohio. Now, can you imagine the postman? We're all everybody's listening to this knows who Ed Roth and, and some of his crazy wild t-shirts and, yeah. and sweatshirts and things. But can you imagine the postman in my little town of Canfield, Ohio, five thousand <laughs> people going what? Because they all the mailman always looked at the mail, right? And they would open this and go, "What is this Dixie kid look?" <laughs> and I, that's that's probably my prized possession. It's not the most valuable, but it's right. probably one of my because it goes back to my my origins. You know? Of course, my prized possession is my dad's Model T station wagon. Mm-hmm. But but in my collectibles, yeah, that Roth catalog would be would be right up there. What is it about the the pedal cars and the derby cars? What is it about those that makes you, you know, compulsively collect all of this this stuff? The the pedal cars. Now, see the der- derby cars. Uh, let me do the pedal cars first. Those of us that grew up in the fifties, the guys had pedal cars. That was our our not our mode of transportation, but that was our toy. That's what we would play with. And when I can remember the first pedal car I bought as a collectible, and it was at, it was at the Atlantic city antique show. And, um, it was sitting there and it didn't have, it didn't even have a drivetrain underneath it, but I looked at it. And for some reason, I just felt like I had to have that. I wanted it. And what it was, I don't know how well, you know, the, the pedal cars, but it was a 48 Pontiac. Mm-hmm. 48 Pontiac pedal car was made by Murray from 1948 to about 1950. And it's got a distinctive nose on it. And I don't know what it was, but I had to have it. So I bought it and I came home and I started thinking, you know, I think I've got some pictures that my mom took. My mom was, you know, I, I, I laugh. My memory of my mother is a brownie camera in front of her face going, you know, stand still. And, uh, I said, I think mom's got some slides. She used to shoot slides. And I said, I think mom's got some slides. And I, I looked through the slides and I found a picture of me with my pedal car. And it was that pedal car. And I didn't remember that. I didn't remember that it was a 48. Now we had the station wagon version. What I bought was the fire truck. They made the car, the fire truck, and the station wagon. And 
I would have gotten it when I was probably three or four years old. Now that would have been 1954. And those of you that are listening are doing the math right now and going, now, wait a minute, if it was a 48 plan. <laughs> well, we were poor folks and it was passed down and it was my cousin's car that he had. And he was of that age that he would have had it new mm-hmm. in 1948, 49. And then my dad got it from my uncle and gave it to me. And it was then my car, the station wagon. I was able to find a very beautiful example of that 48 station wagon. That's one of my prize position uh, pieces too. But pedal cars are fun. You can customize them. You remember, you know, cruising down the, down the sidewalk and playing uh, soapbox or playing uh, uh, derby crashing with them mm-hmm. and, and, and doing, the, doing that sort of thing. And you can customize them when you were a kid. Probably the other thing about pedal cars is unlike full-size cars. And I know that some folks have the wherewithal to collect a whole bunch of full-size cars, but you can get a whole lot of pedal cars in a smaller space. You can hang them from the ceiling and, you know, put them in and, and guys would get them and, and, and put them in their rec room. Uh, their, their wives would be okay with it because they could put their doll collection or their bear collection in and, and do that. And we rode that, that pedal car wave was, it was big for, for quite a while. And then it changed because they brought the reproductions in. And somebody's not going to buy a Murray Dipside Champion. Those pedal car people that are listening are going to know what I'm talking about. 51 through 55, Murray did what they called a Dipside Champ. A Dipside Champion, we used to get five, six, seven hundred dollars for them. Mm-hmm. Well, they brought they brought the uh, the uh, the reproductions in, and I've got no problem with them. They're reproductions, but they picked the 51 Murray Champion as the very first one to bring over the sea, and that one. Uh, tripped a lot of triggers for guys because it's what they remembered. And if you want a pedal car in your rec room uh, or man cave, as they say, we talked about uh, a reproduction is probably just as good for you. If you just want to have one, if you're not an astute collector, the hobby has flipped so much and changed that the cars that have a value are the cars that are original paint and, and original hubcaps, the unrestored, uh, the ones with uh, patina. How about is that in the Webster's Dictionary now? Patina. I'm sure it is. And the Derby stuff. You would think that AJ Foyt was in the soapbox Derby or or Rick Mears if it was your era. And uh, no, not necessarily the case. They there was one or two that went on to some some fame, limited fame from the Derby. But it was just such Americana. If you know the story of Chevrolet was involved in it, and you went and got the wheels and the axle at the Chevy dealer hmm. and it was $5 or something. And the marketing, the marketing idea was got dad in the showroom, got dad in the showroom mm-hmm. yeah. Chevy, and now we're building the cars. I think that you might be in a unique position to know more about the soapbox derby than most people. What is your favorite bit of history or your favorite story from the history of the soapbox derby. Well, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you a couple. All right. Okay. We can edit this down or we're going to make this a mini series. Two things. One was that the derby started in Dayton in 1934 by a man named Myron Scott. And he was an ad salesman for the local newspaper. And he <clears throat> saw these kids playing with their hand-built soapbox cars they put wheels on soap boxes and ran them down thing and he thought you know that's a pretty cool idea for a an event maybe we'll organize an event and these kids can race their cars and i can do a special section of the newspaper and sell ads well, that was pretty good pretty good salesman and he did it in 34 by the way i've got which i consider one of the holy grails i've got a, a i've got a program from 1934 that's a real hard piece to have from dayton and uh he promoted it and it just took off. And in 1936, and I don't know if you're going to Google this, I might be wrong by a year and it doesn't matter, but it moved from Dayton to Akron and Chevrolet got involved. Fisher body stamped the helmets. They were metal. God, they look like metal soup bowls that they would use as helmets. I'm talking about ringing your bell if you got upside (laughs) down on that, but um, it moved to Akron and it really took off and it was, it was huge. It was big. And the, um, a bit of trivia, the, the uh, different regions would have their competition and whoever won the district for that reason, region, they would go to Akron. 
and the local newspaper <clears throat> would sponsor that car. So if you find a soapbox derby car, take notes, folks. If you find a soapbox derby car that has amateurish lettering, like dad and lad did Bob's steering gears with a brush on the side of it. And then underneath it, it says the Indianapolis star in perfect lettering. That's an all-American car. That means that car went to Akron for the finals because it had the, the regular lettering and then the newspaper always added. But anyway, where I was getting with a, with a bit of trivia was Myron Scott had such a good relationship with Chevrolet that in the 40s after the war, he went to work for them. And Myron Scott is in the National Corvette Museum in Bowling Green. And you know why? He went to work for them and he suggested the name Corvette. Huh. the Corvette sports car. And um, that's why he's in the museum. He's in the Hall of Fame down in Bowling Green. And he was the man that, and Corvette, if you look it up, the definition, it was a British fighting ship uh, from the war. It was known for its agility and its speed. And he said, let's call it a Corvette. Huh. Hey, there you go. You just win the trivia contest. <laughs> and the other, the other story, if we've still got time, the other story is I had a good connection at the, at the soapbox derby <clears throat> headquarters in Akron. Cause I'm pretty close there. And I had a guy that had some things and people were donating some things and they were selling some things. And I went one day and he said, Hey, I've got a couple of flags that the guys carried in the parade at the all American each year on Thursday, the, the winners of the regionals would march. They had all kinds of activities during the week, but they would uh, march in a parade on Thursday. And each of the regional winners would carry the flag from the city that their regional headquarters was. Mm -hmm. And this was from 1962, I believe, 1962. And it was the 25th anniversary. And he held this flag up and it said Lincoln, Nebraska. Hmm. And I said, Lincoln, Nebraska. And he goes, yeah. He said, this fellow won the All-American that year. I go, and my ears were smoking, right? I knew Speedy Bill at the time and knew the collectibles mm -hmm. and the whole thing. And so I said, gosh, I said, I need to buy that. It's Lincoln, Nebraska. It's Soapbox Derby. And they won the championship that year. And so I bought it. And it's neither here nor there what I paid for it. I could afford it, I guess. I bought it. And my thought was, I'm always a merchant. I said, Bill's going to buy this from me. And he'll buy it and put it in his museum. And uh, and I saw him at Hershey that year. I got it in the summer. I saw him at Hershey. And I told him about it. And you knew Bill. Ultimate horse trader. I told him about all this. And he goes, and he looked away and he went, yeah, that sounds interesting. Yeah, why don't you send me a picture of that train? That's all he did. Was, yeah, send me. <laughs> you know, he wouldn't, he didn't go, oh, no kidding. Golly sake. You know, he's just like, yeah, I, yeah, why don't you send me a picture of that? So. I forgot. I didn't, I didn't do it for some reason. I was busy with the road tour. So I saw him again at SEMA. He goes, Dixie, hey, say, hey, when that's something you had that you were going to send me a picture of or something? I go, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I forgot, Bill. I'm sorry. So <clears throat> it was <laughs> another Frank Capra moment. It was snowing and it was before Christmas. And I thought about it and I took that flag and I folded it up. And I put it in a box and I said, Merry Christmas, Bill. I didn't need the $400 I was going to get for mm -hmm. it. I said, Merry Christmas. And I sent it to him. And I didn't hear from him until the next spring. And Bill was a busy guy. It wasn't like he was blowing me off. He was a busy guy. But maybe this was his style. I went through the museum that year in the spring and my name's on that flag. <laughs> and it says from the collection of, and you can go up and look at it, Joe. It says from the collection of Jerry Dixie. And that was like, so much better than yeah. whatever little amount of money that I would get for it. It was just like, you look around and there's not a lot of names on that stuff. And I know people, you know, people donate stuff, but that to me was just Bill thanking me over and over forever. Right. That was cool. That was cool. I, I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, long hair Jerry in the sixties, <laughs> riding his chopper and going to Woodstock. But <laughs> You know, that doesn't really fit. Well, I mean, let me tell you one that you haven't heard. Long-haired Jerry, by the way, drove a, a, a 63 Ford Falcon to Woodstock. 
uh, with his buddies. And we wouldn't have gotten in had it not been for somebody that figured out a way that we could get in the back way. And that's another story for another time. But one that you don't know is, is uh, long-haired Jerry stood at the rim of the Snake River Canyon and saw Evil Knievel put the rocket in the drink. Oh, Wow. I was right there. <laughs> if you want to go to, if you want to go to, if you want to go to internal combustion, <laughs> we can keep it. We can keep it at that level rather than music. Yeah. Um, the word on the street in 1974 was, and I, I had a motorcycle shop at the time. The word on the street was that Evil Knievel is going to spend a million dollars and throw a party at the Snake River Canyon when he when he rides his what we thought was going to be his XR 750 across the across the canyon. What were we thinking, right? But you got there, and and he was he he was taking he was going to try to take a rocket across that's what it was it was a rocket ship it wasn't a motorcycle it had two wheels but it, uh, it had a jet engine on it so uh so yeah i went out there and uh, oh i could i could fill a whole nother a whole nother uh podcast with stories of of evil knievel's uh party at, at the snake river canyon but to, to wrap things up when you talk about woodstock and you talk about evil knievel that i went to and and my wife and i and, and our friends we traveled around a lot we were hippies kind of uh, and got to travel. And I, I get a kick out of the people on the road tour that they'd go, wow, what a life uh, driving hot rods all over the country and, and, and going to, going to street rod events. What a wild life. And I look at them and go, man, you should have seen me in the day. <laughs> this is retirement for me. <laughs> so anyway, that, that, that'll kind of, kind of bring it full circle, but yeah, I, I, I I've been very, very fortunate. I have been able to make a, a, a living, a decent living, doing the things that I enjoy. And, you know, was it Mark Twain said that you'll never work a day in your life if you enjoy mm-hmm. what you do. So, and I think Joe, you got it too. We'll throw it back to you. You've got a pretty good, uh, you got a pretty good deal. I see your hands in those advertisements every once in a while <laughs> for Speedway. So I, I too have a pretty good gig. Yeah, that's fine. We're lucky. We're lucky. I, I, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that every day. Uh, about the fact that that I'm being that I'm able to make a living and do what I like, and I feel sorry for people. And and hey, there's a lot of people that have to do it, but I feel sorry for people that get up every morning and have to go to a job they hate. Yeah, it's just not good. Thanks to Jerry Dixie for being our guest today, and thanks to all of you for listening to What Moves You, a Speedway Motors podcast. To see photos and watch video we referenced in today's episode, visit the toolbox at speedwaymotors.com. Email the podcast at podcast at speedwaymotors.com. And if you like what you heard, tell a friend where to find us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks.